Thank you, and what a delight it is to be with you and uh, to see this very fine ministry. I need to tell you that Rebecca and I, we look forward very much to being with you every two years and uh, to connect with your pastor and his wife and to be able to meet a man who can actually preach more than 100 messages on the book of Romans. I mean, there, there aren't too many like that. And so it's great to be with you and to see all that God is doing here in Raleigh. When I was with you two years ago, I probably referred to my parents. Not sure, but I might have. And some of you might be wondering, are your parents still living? I say that because my mother will be 100 in November, and my father next month will be 106. Now... My parents have lived so long that by now I'm sure all of their friends in heaven think that they just didn't make it. (laughs) But one of the things they would tell you at their age is they have no peer pressure. All right? No peer pressure. Seventy-seven years ago, this uh, 25th of July, July 25th, which I think is next week, they will be celebrating their 77th wedding anniversary. Uh, Yeah. I've got to tell you, we think this one's going to (laughs) last. My father walked my mother home 77 years ago. She worked for a farmer a half mile from a little church. On the way, he asked whether or not she would marry him, and she said she'd have to think about it, but within three weeks they were married. And uh, it's going to last, for sure, for sure. It's so great to see all of you today. And by the way, two years ago, after living in the United States, something like uh, 37 years or so, uh, I became an American citizen. Thank you so much for welcoming me into your fine country, and I am very proud to be able to say, my fellow Americans. Now, you may wonder, you may say, well, we understand your English fairly well. Where in the world did you come from? Well, I was born and reared in Canada and uh, lived here, of course, uh, with a green card, legally, I might say, and uh, (laughs) nevertheless became an American citizen two years ago. The whole subject of grace, which is your summer series, actually involves discernment. If we're going to grow in grace, we need to be able to discern what is happening. And that's my topic today. It is the topic of discernment. When Jesus said, beware of false prophets, he made two very important points. Number one, they exist. And number two, they are dangerous. Today we are told that we should not evaluate miracles and prophecies and healings because if we evaluate them, somehow we divide the church. One day there was a meeting taking place within a church and uh, there was uh, animal noises. These noises were being made. You had some people laughing uncontrollably. And a man standing at the back asked the question uh, and he asked it audibly. He said, I wonder if this is from God. And a woman who overheard him said, well, it's happening in church, isn't it? Well, I'm here to say that just because something happens in church, that doesn't mean it is of God. As a matter of fact, if you think about it, if you were Satan, wouldn't you want some things to happen in church that make people think that it is of God when in point of fact it isn't? 
Now, the Bible tells us that there are two different kinds of false prophets. In the book of Deuteronomy, it says in chapter 18, it speaks about false prophets who predict the future and they are wrong. And that text tells us that they should actually be put to death because God says if a prophet prophesies something that didn't happen, he is not of God. Because God knows the future infallibly. And so if you speak under the inspiration of God because he gave you a message, you will be right 100% of the time. Isn't it interesting that there are people on television who have made, they've made various prophecies about revivals that were to come and what have you, and people still, still listen to them and still regard them as a truthful prophet. But then there's another category of prophets, and uh, I know that all of you brought your Bibles. I mean, if you go to a church where your pastor preaches 60 messages on the book of Job, you're tempted to bring a whole truckload of Bibles to church. But let's look at Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 13. And I will ask you to turn to this passage. Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse 1, because this becomes now a matter of discernment. Now things become difficult. You'll notice in chapter 13, verse 1, it's as if a prophet or dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass. And if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord God is testing you as to whether or not you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Notice, it is possible to have a prophet to say things that come to pass. It's possible for prophets to speak truth and still be false prophets. Wow. Perhaps the best Old Testament illustration is Balaam. You remember Balaam was asked by the king of Moab to curse Israel. He was to curse Israel. And he tried to curse Israel. Because the king said, if you curse him, I'll give you money. And false prophets are almost always into money. So he tried to curse Israel. But rather than curses coming out of his mouth, blessing came. In fact, it was Balaam who said those wonderful words, Behold, a star shall arise from Jacob, and a scepter shall arise in Israel. It's a messianic prophecy, beautiful prophecy. And yet in the New Testament, Balaam is presented as a quintessential example of a false prophet. And the reason is because the book of Numbers shows us that he was into sorcery, and occultism, and he did not leave his occultism behind. And that's why eventually he misled Israel and actually led them into immorality and into idolatry. There you have it. A prophet can speak that which comes to pass, and Balaam did, and still be a false prophet. Wow, we need discernment, don't we? Now, in the book of Jeremiah, this book dedicates several chapters to false prophets. Since you've uh, turned in your Bibles already to Deuteronomy, turn a little farther and we'll get here to the book of Jeremiah. And I'm going to read a passage from the 14th chapter and then also from the 5th chapter. You'll notice what it says about false prophets. Chapter 14, verse 13 of Jeremiah. 
Then I said, O Lord, behold, the prophets say to them, You shall not see the sword, nor shall you have famine. In other words, there's no judgment. Everything that they tell us is positive. In fact, I will give you assured peace in this place. Follow me, and all will go well. But verse 14, And the Lord said to me, The prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I did not send them, nor did I command them or speak to them. They are prophesying to you a lying vision, worthless divination, and the deceit of their own minds. And if you watch false prophets on television, you can verify that. Oh, the Lord is just showing me something. I'm just having a revelation now. The Lord is just showing me that there are actually nine members of the Trinity, a false prophet said. Oh, isn't that nice? Sometimes what they say accords with Scripture. Sometimes it is against Scripture. And sometimes it is just plain silly. It is the delusion of their own minds. Now, let's look at uh, Jeremiah chapter 5. You'll notice it says in verse 30, An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule at their direction, and my people love to have it so. The prophets are saying exactly what they want to hear. There's no judgment. There's no sword. There's no famine. Come, peace, prosperity. Follow your desires. God is up there to do nothing but bless you. But what will you do when the end comes? What a warning. Yeah, my people love to have it so. One of the things that you'll notice about false prophets is they fail to distinguish, they cannot distinguish, or they confuse, to put it in a different way, they confuse the delusions of their mind with revelations from God. They will say those kinds of things. Verses will be taken out of context. Can't you imagine what happened when Satan came to Jesus and says, throw yourself down from the pinnacle of the temple. He will give his angels charge concerning thee and he'll bear you up. Can't you just imagine a false prophet on television saying, you know, there's that promise in the Old Testament that angels will bear you up. You know what I could do? I could jump from the pinnacle of the temple and God would catch me. The delusions of their own mind. And the other thing that they do is they always prophesy what people want to hear. Now, with that background and all that is background and all that is introduction, what I want you to do now is to turn to the New Testament, to our text for the day. The text is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul is confronted here with false prophets, false prophets. These false prophets had letters of recommendation. They were better speakers than Paul. It's very clear. They regarded Paul as being weak. They were the kinds of people who said that if you follow us, we'll give you further revelation that will be a deeper understanding of Christianity. Now we're going to read some of the verses that Paul says. And then I shall give you five characteristics of false teachers. So that if you're sitting there in the television set and you're using the remote control, and by the way, have you ever noticed that men love to have remote control, the remote control? And the reason is because to a man, even remote control is better than none at all. 
So there you are, you're watching television, and you say to yourself, is that a false prophet? What you'll do is you'll go down the list and say, what are those telltale signs? Now, sometimes you might not be able to tell the difference. Because I've noticed that false prophets, I mean, I think of one of the uh, false prophets who at times will actually give the gospel, it'll be thrown in somewhere after all kinds of heresies. But I'm going to give you characteristics to look for. But let's read the words of the Apostle Paul. I'm picking it up in verse 3. He says in verse 2, I want to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 11. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. By the way, time to stop. What led Eve astray? Confusing the revelation that she received from the serpent as having greater authority than the revelation of God. And there are people today who bypass the scriptures, as we shall see, because why should I bother studying the Bible when I get it directly from God unfiltered? Now notice verse 4. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one that we proclaimed, Or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I uh, am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. Now, the super apostles, who were they? They were the ones who said that uh, we actually are stronger than Paul. We can do things Paul can't. We can lead you into depths of spirituality that Paul doesn't. And so Paul here is defending himself, sometimes with a bit of sarcasm, to show that indeed he isn't a super apostle, but he pinpoints their errors. Now, what are the characteristics of the super apostles. Number one, they have their own Jesus. Verse four, for if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus, the Jesus that they proclaimed was, first of all, there were some super apostles who said that Jesus isn't enough, that what you need to do is to add the works of the law to what Jesus has done. And if you do that, then you will be saved and sanctified. There was another group of super apostles who said that we do not need to suffer. What we need to do is to experience the power of Jesus without the suffering of Jesus. Jesus is here to give us power. He's here to give us strength. And because he suffered, certainly, but we don't have to. We can concentrate on the power that he is able to give us. And so they preached that Jesus. It was a Jesus without the cross. It was the Jesus without the humiliation. It was the Jesus who's there to empower us without needing to repent of our sins and to turn from our sins without us needing to be holy. It was this Jesus who's destined to bless us no matter what, no matter what else we might believe. May I remind you today that there are many different Jesuses. 
I was at O'Hare Field and I was in the uh, departure lounge uh, waiting for a plane and there was a woman reading the prayer of Jabez. So I went up and struck up a conversation with her. She said to me, I am a Mormon. And she said, I'm reading this in order to, to really gain insight as to how I can get God to bless my new business. And that's why I'm reading this book. And then she said, but we're Christians too because there is only one Jesus. And then I smiled. Whenever you give people hard words, be sure to smile. And then it'll go down a little more easily. I said, lady, I need to explain to you that the Jesus in which Mormons believe is an entirely different Jesus. If you know anything about Mormonism, it is a very different Jesus. There is the Mormon Jesus. There's the Jehovah's Witness Jesus. There's the Santa Claus Jesus. There's the cosmic Jesus of an Oprah Winfrey and her guests. There is a, a Jesus who is the delusional Jesus of Albert Schweitzer. There are all kinds of different Jesuses. False prophets will always talk to you about Jesus. It's Jesus this, Jesus that, Jesus here. Now, my friend, this is very important. What Paul is saying in this passage is, regardless of the kind of Jesus that the people were believing in or about to believe in, he believed that this false Jesus was so close to the real Jesus that he feared that the people in Corinth might not know the difference. This Jesus was so close to the real one, the people might have been deceived. So Paul says, if somebody comes to you and preaches to you another Jesus, beware. Secondly, he says that you receive a different spirit. I think that that could be an evil spirit. We'll comment on that in a moment. Or if you accept a different gospel, a different gospel. What is the different gospel? Basically, it was a gospel of prosperity. It was a gospel of money. You say, well, how do you know that in the text? I'm not going to take time to read this, but if we were to read verses 7 to 12, what we would discover is that Paul is defending the fact that he did not receive money when he preached at Corinth. In fact, he says, I robbed other churches. I took money from other people, he says, so that I could bless you without you needing to give me money because, he said, I did not want to be like the super apostles who did nothing without money. Now, there's nothing wrong to receive money in ministry. There's nothing wrong to receive offerings. In fact, after this service, we're going to be receiving an offering for your new church, and I hope that you give generously. But what super apostles always do is, to them, money is up front and center. It is a gospel connected to greed. Did you know that there is supposedly a revival going on right now in Lakeland, Florida? As a matter of fact, hundreds of thousands of people have gone to that uh, particular revival that is taking place. There is a Canadian evangelist there who is supposedly doing miracles. He claims, by the way, that he has raised 30 people from the dead. They're difficult to find. Nobody knows where they are, but that's the claim that is being made. But when he took an offering recently, he said these words, what kind of a portion of God's spirit do you want to receive in terms of your giving? What kind of an anointing? It depends on how much you give. 
false prophets will always connect, always connect somehow money to what it is that they are doing. By the way, no extra cost thrown in. If it is true that they expect us to live by faith and give some seed money, and that seed money is going to grow, why don't these people send us money as seed money? Why don't they give away all their money as seed money and watch it grow? It's very interesting, isn't it? It is a gospel of prosperity, a gospel of money. And Paul says, if you receive another gospel, a gospel that does not clearly preach Jesus Christ and him crucified, let me speak to you very plainly. If there is someone who preaches and does not preach Jesus Christ and him crucified, and this man in Florida does not preach the scriptures, he says he does not preach the gospel because he is interested in the power of Christ and has the power of Christ. And he opened his Bible on the 3rd of July when he was preaching only because he got criticized for not opening it, and that's why he said he opened it. I personally would not follow a man who does not preach Jesus Christ and him crucified even if he can raise the dead. Paul says, beware of another gospel. Hmm. Third characteristic is these teachers, these super apostles, they have their own power, their own power. I'm going to skip here to verse 13. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves. Notice now this. This is chilling. His agents, his servants, disguise themselves not as servants of unrighteousness, But as servants of righteousness, their end will correspond with their deeds. They come as servants of righteousness. Let me give you a couple of examples in modern culture. I've just written a new book, which isn't out yet, but will be at the end of the year, entitled Oprah, Miracles, and the New Earth. I've spent a lot of time in the thick 600 to 1,000 page book entitled A Course in Miracles written by Helen Shookman. In 1965, she, as an atheistic Jew, used to begin by receiving dreams and revelations, and this book, according to her, was written by automatic writing. It bypassed her consciousness. This is very familiar in occult circles. She said that she was just the scribe for what the spirit entity dictated to her to write. In that book, Uh, She blasphemes Jesus many times, but one of the things she says is this. She says, one of the most pathetic errors you can make is to cling to the old rugged cross. Now, I need to ask you, by the way, how many of you are acquainted with the song, The Old Rugged Cross? God bless you. What a wonderful song. What a wonderful hymn that is. And, And how would she know about this song? The truth is she probably didn't know about the song. She didn't have to. Because remember, this spirit, this demonic spirit that dictated the book, that spirit knew about the song and he hated it. By the way, 
There are 365 uh, lessons. And Marianne Williamson wrote a contemporary kind of uh, popular exposition of The Course in Miracles because Helen Shookman is dead. Marianne Williamson wrote this popular exposition, so she is teaching it and has team taught it with Oprah online. On day 191, each day you're supposed to say one of these mantras. On day 191, you are to say, I am the Holy Son of God himself. Can you imagine saying that? By the way, wives, if your husband were to say that, would you believe him? Uh, am I going too fast for some of you here? <laughs> what blasphemy. And yet it says that when you say that, it says light will break into the dark crevices of your soul. What does the text say here? It is that they are transformed. His servants are transformed into angels of light and they masquerade as servants of righteousness. Marianne Williamson's book is entitled A Return to Love. Who can be against love? But let me bring this closer to home. What about the super apostles that we see on television? What about their power? You've seen it happen where people come onto the platform and a super apostle touches them and they collapse on the platform and they fall down. One time someone did that, he wasn't properly caught and he broke a rib and they had to call the paramedics. And I'm saying, now what is wrong with this picture somewhere? <laughs> You've seen that. And then they say, well, this is something that Jesus didn't do, Paul didn't do, but it happened during America's Second Great Awakening. And the answer to that question is no, that's not correct. In the Second Great Awakening, it is true, particularly in Kentucky, there were people who were overcome by the conviction of sin and they fell down on the ground, but it was because of the conviction of sin, because in those days they preached against sin. Furthermore, the evangelists in the Second Great Awakening regarded it as a distraction. They did not encourage it. And never did it happen because a super apostle touched them. And furthermore, they were never taken in the front of the congregation and held up as an example of what happened to others. I wrote a book on discernment, and, uh, and in it I have a quotation from someone who is basically on, uh, in favor of much of what is going on, much more sympathetic than some of us might be. And he did a study of all those who did carpet time, as he called it, all those who fell down. And he discovered, he says, that all of the claims being made in terms of uh, different life, power, holiness, that those claims did not exist. Super apostles, super apostles. Paul is going to say, we can't compete with them. He's going to say that in a moment, and we can't compete with them either. So the third characteristic is they have their own power. Number four. They have their own means of control. We could say their own means of exploitation. I'm uh, skipping down to verse 20. For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you or devours you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs who strikes you in the face, you bear it. One of the things about super apostles is that they want to always exploit their adherents. So what they do is, you'll notice it says, they uh, make slaves of you, they devour you. Uh, they want you to connect with them. 
If you watch on television, have you ever noticed how oftentimes these crowds are filled with poor people? Because these poor people are really saying, if I just had enough faith, I could drive a Rolls Royce just like my superstar, just like my hero, just like my guru. If, if I just had the faith, I could have a Rolex watch or I could have this. But it's because I lack the faith. It's very interesting that the super apostles, and I've watched them for a long time, they never lose. If there is a healing, they take the credit. If there isn't a healing, it's your fault because you didn't have enough faith. If only you had the faith, you would be healed. And so the super apostles always win. They always win. And of course, when it comes to false cults, you'll notice that the Apostle Paul says here that they make slaves of you. False cults will always want to isolate you from your church, even from your family, because what they want is total, absolute control. I remember being in the presence of a false prophet, and he was trying to convince me to kneel there on their coffee table and pray and repent of my sins. And I could just see in his eyes that if I had done that, what he really wanted me is to kneel before him because he was sitting there on the couch. And yes, I would pray to Jesus, but in effect, I would pray to him. And he made a prediction that if I didn't pray to him, uh, God was going to make sure that I would fall in the ministry. This was perhaps uh, 25 years ago that he made that prediction. You see, what false prophets do is they intimidate you. They want to say, you don't follow me, God is going to judge you. God is going to curse you. Why? Because they want that bonding. They want that adoration and they want that money that comes into their coffers. It's interesting that the early church used to have discussions as to whether or not it was possible for a rich man to enter into heaven. Today, we have super apostles that tell us that it's God's will that everybody be rich and that the sufferings of Jesus do not apply to you as a child of God. And so, notice it says they have their own means of exploitation, number four. Could I give you number five? Number five is they have their own way of self-exaltation. Actually, number four was their own means of control. And number five is related, their own way of self-exaltation. You say, well, where is that in the text? I'm zeroing in on that, uh, on that phrase, they put on airs. They strike you in the face. And they do this with a sense of arrogance that is absolutely unbelievable. One day I was watching one of these super apostles and a couple came forward and they weren't able to have children. And so he said to them, you want to have a child? They said, yes. He said, you want a boy or a girl? They said, we want a boy. What color eyes would you like him to have? We want him to have blue eyes. And on and on it went. It was like a, an order catalog ordering a child. Now, I have to ask you a question. Let us suppose that instead of having a blue-eyed boy, that this couple actually ends up with a brown-eyed girl. Would they say to themselves, we were just deceived by an apostle? Because he claimed to speak on behalf of God and he assured us that we were going to have, we were going to have a girl with blue eyes. Is that what they would say? No. What they would say is, we didn't have the faith. It's our fault. Super apostles put on airs. The early church was suspicious of any super apostle that came in overdressed with uh, trying to attract attention to himself. 
They were concerned about that. I uh, remember a super apostle on television. Actually, I know this man, and uh, he does at times preach the gospel. Again, it's very confusing. He was walking by, and he said, you know, I was at this funeral. And he said, I just had, uh, it overcame me. He said, I just wanted to say to that man, get up. I thought, well, why didn't you? That would have been a good opportunity for you to prove that you can speak to the dead and have them rise. But for some reason, it wasn't God's will, I guess, that he say that. Notice Paul says they put on airs. And even though they slap you in the face, Paul says you put up with it. Now notice what Paul's response is. He says in verse 21, To my shame, I must say that we are too weak for that. See, the super apostle says, Paul, we can't do you in all these things. And Paul says, yeah, you're right. He says, uh, I'm too weak. I, I can't compete with the super apostles. The things that they can do, the claims that they make, the gospel that they preach, that's not where I'm at. And may I say that I cannot compete with the super apostles. Your pastor cannot compete with the super apostles. We can't touch people and have them collapse. We can't claim healings. During the time of the Reformation, official Christendom criticized the Reformers. And they said to the Reformers, We have the miracles. We have relics that multiply themselves. We have statues that weep. Where are your miracles? And what the Reformers said is that the gospel itself is the power of God unto salvation. That it is through the proclamation of the gospel that the Holy Spirit of God takes the word of God and uh, therefore it explodes in our hearts and we see our need and we believe on Jesus because Paul says it is the power of God unto salvation. God does miracles. God heals people. God works out circumstances. But that is not the basis upon which we do ministry. We preach Christ and Him crucified. And we invite men and women to leave their sins. We do not believe that the invitation of Jesus is that you can be healed no matter what you believe, no matter what religion you belong to. I could tell you stories of attending a meeting where people from different religions supposedly were healed, even though the little investigation I did afterwards proved that they weren't. But nonetheless, it is just come one, come all and be healed and be wealthy. That is not the gospel. The gospel is Jesus died for sinners. And unless we acknowledge our sinfulness and our helplessness and come to him in faith, we will be lost no matter how healthy or prosperous we become. Because the gospel is the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. What are the characteristics of false apostles? They will always exploit people and they will always tell people exactly what they want to hear. The Bible speaks about those having itching ears and listening to doctrines that are in accord with their desires. Could I challenge you today by making you aware of something you already know? That Jesus did not change his world by miracles. As a matter of fact, all the miracles that Jesus performed were temporary. They were not permanent. Even Lazarus had to die again. By the way, have you ever thought of how you could scare Lazarus after he was raised from the dead? Lazarus, I'm going to kill you. Go ahead. Been there. Done that. <laughs> Lazarus had to die again. 
How did Jesus, the people who received the miracles of the five loaves and two fish, they became hungry again? How did Jesus change his world? Jesus changed his world not by miracles, but by his suffering. And that's why the Apostle Paul ends this whole chapter, and you can read it this afternoon, listing all of the sufferings that he went through. Why does he put all this suffering here at the end of this chapter? What he's saying is that the authenticity of me as a prophet of God is that I suffer well. The people over here may have their their wealth and their clothes and all the other things. But if you want to ask why I have authenticity and integrity is, I'm good at suffering. And if you and I are followers of Jesus, we should suffer differently than we suffer, than the people of the world suffer, because we are followers of Jesus who suffered well, and because he suffered, we have eternal life. As a matter of fact, there may be some of you here who have never believed on Jesus, and you know who you are, don't you? Because you know that you have no special connection with Jesus. You admire him or you wouldn't be here today. But you've never transferred your trust to him to be your savior. One day I was on a plane talking to a woman who thought that uh, she uh, didn't really need a savior because She didn't really see herself as a sinner. So I said to her with a smile, I said, would you consider yourself to be ungodly? She said, oh, no. She said, I'm not ungodly. And I said, you know, I'm really sorry about that because I have no good news for you. I said, the Bible says that Jesus died for the ungodly. So if you're not ungodly, you can't be saved. (laughs) My dear friends, Jesus died for the ungodly. I speak to those of you today who are ungodly. Jesus died for the ungodly. I encourage you to transfer your trust to him, and even though you might not have wealth, and you might not have health, and all of us are going to die someday, including the super apostles, they will die also, you will be with God in heaven. Because we have a Savior who came, not to make us healthy or wealthy, even though he may throw that in at times, but we have a Savior who came to save us from our sins. It is Jesus and him crucified. Let us pray. Our Father, in this age of great confusion, we pray that you might give us wisdom. Help us to be a discerning people, to be able to tell the difference between those who are true apostles who uplift the real Jesus and those who use the name of Jesus and teach another Jesus and another gospel. Help us, we pray. And we ask that we might always be excited about the real Jesus who died for real sinners to give us real redemption. Father, Hear our prayers today. In Jesus' name, amen.